Welcome to the Lights Out Podcast. This is Chris Lights Out Lytle, and this is our journey to document the history of mixed martial arts. I've brought with me my friend, the MMA detective Mike Davis, and together we will preserve the history and hear some great stories from the world in the era of the no holds barred. Thank you and enjoy. Welcome back to the Lights Out MMA History Podcast. I am Joey Venti. I'm with the host of the show, the MMA detective, Mike Davis. I was cage side when today's guest gained national recognition back in 2001, but his roots in the combat sports go back to the 1970s. Amateur wrestler, professional wrestler, submission wrestler. He is an MMA veteran of the IVC, King of the Cage and Pride. I am excited that we finally get a chance to catch up with the trainer of champions and all around scary individual, the one and only Obaki, a.k.a. Dr. Tim Cadolfo. Good. Thanks for being here. Awesome. I almost couldn't keep myself together during that intro. That's beautiful. <laughs> so uh, there was a, a fighter up here in the Chicagoland area that moved to Atlanta, trains with Chukau down there. Uh, and he called me up. He's like, man, I just walked you into a restaurant. You know, Baki? So I'm like, and hit him with these two questions. And here we are. Canyon Smith. Uh, Oh, you buddy. Thank you, Canyon Smith. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, he was a nice so. dude. He came in. The buddy he's with comes into the bar all the time. And he goes, oh, the, the owner of the bar here, he used to do some uh, fighting just like you do, the MMA. And he goes, really? You know, I'm an old man now. <laughs> so yeah. We started yeah. talking. He was a good kid. He was a really warm kid. He was nice. Specimen. He is yeah, a specimen. Totally specimen. It looks great. It looks yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So, Tim, okay. So, I've got, obviously, i got some notes on you, but... There seems to be like more behind. You've got some fights that are not recorded, but one of which I was curious about. <clears throat> have you always resided in? When did you start move to Atlanta? In '83. Perfect. So, I'm in New York. It, I was born in New York, grew up in Jersey, back in New York, competed for the New York Athletic Club and Greco Roman of freestyle wrestling. So March 1st, 1996. Scott Ferrozo fought Steve Grino in like a dojo match. It was at the Atlanta Judo Academy. Do you were you there for that? It was the people that threw it later, like did the Mars event. Um, they did the what event? The Mars. I know you're talking about. Um, I believe I was at that event. I, I mean, there was a lot of events here at the dojos, uh, especially the judo place over on Buford Highway. Yeah, that's it. Um, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I saw you in there. Like, I'm like, because what happens? I, was in there. I cruised all those. I was buddies with Dr. Keating. I still am. Uh, Dr. Keating was at all the events as the fight doc. And at the time, I was one of the guys in town that had a decent bag of tricks that the other guys weren't doing. You know, they were all really, um, even though it was mixed martial arts, it was like uh, you have your style, you throw that in the bag. And you bring it to it and you try to fight somebody with something else. So it's like rock, paper, scissors. And then, uh, you know, my style was more bring rock, bring paper, bring scissors, throw them all at once kind of thing. I'd say your system also was very anti-jujitsu, like wrestle heavy, anti-jujitsu. You were like kind of like one of the first people to push that forward. I did. What I realized, you know, as you get involved in this sport, the crucial thing to know is that, um, Anybody that was anti-jujitsu uh, had to be that way because of how good they were doing in the events. I mean, they were just doing very well in the events, and uh, the guys were well-trained and well-disciplined. What I found about jujitsu for me, what was easier to beat, I think, than other people, and this is what I was able to impart to Coleman and Randleman and some of those cats, was that they'll take uh, whatever position they're in, they'll fight to get into the arm bar. Whatever position they're in, they'll fight to get into the triangle. My catchphrase for our guys for American submission fighting was position, transition, submission. Assess where you're at, and that's where you're fighting from. And then transition into your next submitting move. And it was just an easier way for us to look at it instead of you shoot a double leg and you're still fighting for the double where you've been smashed asunder into the canvas. The guy's on top of you with all his body weight, and you're still trying to pull his legs to you. And so it comes from that wrestling mindset that if it's not there, you need to go to something else. And so I think that philosophy really helped us as much as uh, any other thing. Right. Just so if people like they understand what kind of an old school cat this is, 
UFC 20, Kevin Randleman versus Bass Rutten. You were one of the you were one of the judges that night. Yes, I was. Now, at that point, did you know Mark Coleman personally, or is that where no. you guys met? No, uh, I don't think I even met Mark that night. I, you know, I met Kevin, and I might have said hey to Mark, but like we weren't hanging out or anything like that. So, did you side with Bass Rutten, or did you side with Kevin Randall? Well, I know you know the answer. I signed with Kevin Randleman and uh, I had no problem doing it from an aggression aggression factor. I wound up becoming good friends with Boss. And, uh, you know, we've talked about the fight in Japan and everywhere else in the world we've been together. Um, and that's just the way I looked at it. I thought I thought Randleman did the most damage in the beginning of the fight, the first the standard rounds. So I thought that was Randleman. And because it wasn't a finish in the early days, if you didn't finish the guy, it continued. They went by how it went in the final. I haven't watched the fight since the fight happened. How, so sure, are you that, how sure are you that you, you pick Randleman? Oh, I'm 100% sure I picked Randleman. You know what, Joey? I think Dan, Dan Bergliata was a, was a judge there, too. I, yeah. think he picked, I think he picked Randleman as well. No, I was the only one. The other two cats for sure picked Boss Root. And as soon as it was over, they went over, shook his hands. We're all excited about it. Yeah, for sure. I was the guy that picked Randleman. So you we were the be... smart one. You were the smart yeah. one. Yeah, I, I thought he. I thought he won the fight. I thought he was a great. And I love Boston. I think Boston's an incredible champion. Uh, I've got nothing to prove to anybody about my feelings, but I've judged and refereed literally thousands of matches, whether it's in any form of wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, or MMA. I think you called that uh... one right. Excuse me. I said I think you called that one right. Oh, thank you. I, I thought I did. Boss, oh, hold up, boss. I, I'm texting. Uh, this is real time. Or Randall, man. Which judge man. picked Randall? I, I'm, I'm texting. I'm texting. I'm texting Dan Margliotta because there was there's like a little weird conspiracy that we have here that the UFC at one point or another really kind of tilted the table against Hammer House. And, um, there's uh, well, certain- they did, the, the, you know, in the early days, and this is, again, they've had several changes of ownership in the early days in the meeting in the rules meeting, they would tell you, you know, if a guy is the champion, you know, he gets the, he's going to get the knot. And then I would be like, no, I, I don't judge like that. It's whoever looks like they're winning. And trust me, there'll be enough information to know who's winning the fight. Unless it's just a hug and slug and boss does not like to hug and randomman in their early days, was not stand up and do anything. He wanted to get yeah. you to the ground and exact his punishment. So, yeah. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. But they would so, say that. They would say it at the meetings. They would, you know, kind of encourage you to make sure you made the right choice. That never worked for me. I mean, I've lots of matches. Chuck Liddell, I've, I've, I've judged his match, a match of his maybe twice. A lot of those guys, Dan Henderson, a bunch of those cats. In fact, I think Dan Henderson, uh, I gave him a pair of shoes in, um, in uh, Louisiana, Kenner, for an event that we were at there. Everybody's there. It was uh, Coleman, Chemo. That was an awesome, awesome uh, time. I got on the elevator there. John Peretti, I think, was the man. And the elevator wouldn't move. And they said, all right, get Chemo and Coleman off. I said, I'll get off. And I get off and the elevator went up. And Coleman goes, I told you he was fucking big. <laughs> so, <laughs> just all that stupid crap. It's just, I, it was awful. I, I, I know Mark uh, gained a lot of respect for you. I trained with you for the first round of the uh, Pride Grand Prix. First two rounds. First round. Okay, Ricardo Morales. Yeah. How did you connect with Coleman? Um, I was down at the IVC and I fought Keck and Echo and uh, kind of took it to him for a little over nine minutes. He was fish hook, eye gouge, finger pole, you know, just trying to really scrap from the bottom. I caved his ribs in a little bit. I headbutted him probably 25 times. It was a brutal fight. They called the fight. I couldn't see out of my left eye at all. They didn't have a doctor on site. They had nothing. So I pulled out of the event. Coleman was there and watched it and said, dude, what, like your stuff just works. How did you do this or that? So we just started a relationship there. We talked. Pinkle was looking to do more. He wasn't, uh, you know, they had just taken a lot of the tools away from Hammer House, you know, the, with the headbutt or the elbows or the knee strikes on the ground, the things that Mark, well, well, here, he here, just was 
Let me set that up a little bit. So as the sport was evolving, it seemed like the first the first things that were getting taken off the table was what was benefiting Hammer House. So no, so and I and I agree with that. But I don't think okay. You know, I I don't I don't doubt it, but I can't say that I was in the know of some kind of conspiratorial move against the house. I didn't really know. I know this. I know they've called me up six or seven times when guys canceled and I'd get ready. I'd go so far as to get to the event. Once I got the day of the event, had my, my flight canceled because they said not it was going to happen. And then it didn't happen. Um, I was supposed to fight Rodriguez. Uh, no time. It was, you know, Shammy couldn't make it. I mean, it was just back and forth, but I was in it. I know they didn't do well with me because I was a lone wolf. And I think Coleman's kind of a lone wolf. He calls it hammer house, but it's Coleman. Whoever's, got the nuts to stay up there with him, you know, at the time, smaller, smaller uh, camp, but I mean, he was winning everything and uh, it was obvious he was going to keep winning. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So w- what is your entry in the MMA? Uh, where do you, where does your submissions and submission defense come from? Yeah, I think being an excellent wrestler helps a lot. I won the Olympic qualifier in 1980 at 163 pounds. Carter boycotted the Olympics. I didn't go to final trials. Um, so having a lot of experience, I also trained with a a special forces operative for a long time and did a lot of other hand to hand and combative arts techniques. And, uh, as a chiropractor, you know, I was the guy that said, beat him and treat him. If you know how something's supposed to move, uh, this sport asks you to move it the opposite way. And so it's really important to know all the angulations and be able to do it. That worked great for me. So I had a different understanding, you know, my can opener, which is still used today. It's a powerful move. If you use it right, there's eight or nine switches off of it. And if you use that technique correctly, like in the Marais fight, Coleman used it to not only hold him in position where he could work him, but it also creates physiological acidosis where your blood is deprived of the oxygen it needs. So Marais breathing at 140% his average resting rate and his heart's up at about 250% resting rate, which is normal for a fight. And then you, all of a sudden you've got your trachea compromised and now you're really only taking in 85% of what you need. And when you saw him stand up and he kind of looked like the scarecrow and he was just kind of flopping there, you're like, well, he's not breathing hard. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the corner hearing it. And he's not breathing hard. He's just wiped out. And that's what physiological acidosis is. That's what being a chiropractor allowed me to understand. Uh, if you take a guy like in the Kakareko fight where he tries to slip out the ropes and I hit him in the ribs about 15 times in a row, you know, if you can create a bruise on somebody the size of your fist, it's 10% of the blood goes there. It's another way to deoxygenate somebody and then slowly but surely take them apart. So just so people can kind of wrap their heads around this, People would say, oh, it's just a neck crank. This guy had several different kinds of neck cranks, unicorn crank, cervical crank, and a click choke. So it was like, what it's you awesome. say is a neck crank, you really dug deep in. You're like the, the Danaher of leg locks, except for, for the neck, essentially. The neck. You know, I would say this. I don't care whose head it is. I could get it. I've always felt like I got it. I uh, had a reverse cervical block on uh, the big cat. And, uh, I was, you know, here and let, you got to let him go. Cause he was, looked like he was going to swing his hand. Uh, I felt like I was in great position. I let go and I got compromised. I mean, it's just, so I, I feel like I had the good stuff. I still think a lot of the guys that I have talked to recently, um, are familiar with it. It was, it was a highlight for sure. Here, here, let, let's, let's just talk about your career a little bit. Your first event. Now, Joey, Correct me if I'm wrong. The first event on record is September 6th, 1997. Submission fighting open. You're the main event against Joe Pardo. Joey, did you see him fight prior to this? I saw Joe Pardo fight a lot. Yeah, he was from Southern California. He used to fight at Kaja's Cage Combat. Um, he fought a teammate of mine named Josh. Uh, this was in the late 90s, but there's there's quite a few fights on Joe Pardo's record that are not on Sherdog. Yeah, he was kind of a big deal in Southern California. What about yourself? Tim, is there fights on your record uh, or fights that are not on your record? You know, it's hard to say. When we were all doing it, everybody was trying to prove who they were. I have guys come into the gym and test me. Um, you know, the biggest thing I think on uh, in uh, 
Randy is the Randy Couture thing. And that's always floated out there. You know, Randy's mad about me in his book and wrote about it in two pages. And I have to respect him for that. But he did come to town. And at the time, everyone ran their mouth. Nobody was afraid of anybody. Everybody could win any title. And it was just that kind of thing. And I just uh, I took to it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I got Robbie Napick, uh, Robbie Rage. He was pro wrestler. He was out at dinner, heard those guys talking and said, hey, you got to come over. And uh, if you really want to be king of the walk, you're going to have to train with Obaki. They set it up for the next day and we had a training session. And uh, his coach, uh, Mike. Uh, Van Arsdale. Pardon me? Was it, no, no. Coach. Uh, Randy Couture's coach would have been would have Rico Chipperelli. Yeah, that yes. would have been him. The raw team. Right. So, I mean, you know, look, if we're, if we're going to go back and tell stories about the old days, it was a lot of fun. Uh, they told me, like, look, if it's over really quick, do you mind going with him again? Because he really needs the work. And I said, OK. Uh, Randy had not at that point. I don't think he had done much submission. He had trained a little bit with Rico. And, you know, so I know he had skills. He was the athlete of the year for the AU. And he's a phenomenal athlete. And I have a lot of respect. But I was pretty consistently able to close him out in under a minute with a different bunch of series of head cranks. Um, in that era that was like a match because to get a match was brutal the first match yeah. that I had with Bordeaux I had five different people cancel on me I mean literally right up until a couple of weeks prior to the fight so you took it where you could whether it was in a warehouse or this or that whoever was standing there and it's understood and Coleman said this the best he told me this uh, a couple of years later and he said uh, Obaki just remember one thing when they come into your room and you're Obaki just like I'm Coleman it's their Super Bowl. Take it like a match, because it is. And he's he was, right he was, he's right he was not wrong. You don't, you don't go in somebody's room and say, I'll just roll with them, and it's okay if I tap out. You're not there for that. None of us were. So, awesome. Wow. So, Joe Pardo, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu fighter. Um, just so if anybody wants to know what type of caliber of an athlete he is, he took Joe Riggs to a decision. Wow. Like Pardo was legit. Oh, yeah. No, uh, well, when he actually came out to fight, he was on the cover of Karate International or Karate America magazine. And Hoist was sitting on the top of a pile of about 10 guys that were laid across Joe Pardo. And they were they were pushing him as the new it's going to happen. And when they got out there, um, the rules wild, wildly got limited. It went from full on strikes in the main event to basically a submission match with hand strikes. And um you know, it just it became a different event. So I, I took a different tack. That's where I really came up with my uh, not came up. I got to use my counter to the arm bar. So the counter to the arm bar was definitely a, a big one. So you, you wouldn't be that by neck crank. And um, yep. you, you actually have a lot of time and space in between. You're not one of those guys that's fighting once a week. And your next fight, you, you as you had mentioned, and it was in Brazil, I, IBC 4, February 7th, 1998. Yep. Alexandre uh, Ferreira, um, 2001 ADCC bronze, 25 total ADCC matches, wins over Heath Hearing, Brandon Hinkle, Bob Shriver, and Lou Pauly. Dude's a stud. That's your second yeah. fight. In, in his backyard, okay. with very little rules. Oh, yeah. There, no, there's no question. I also went there in uh, November of that year after the fight that I had with Pardo. I was bitten by a copperhead and uh, almost lost my right leg below the knee. It was in peril for the two and a half months prior to the fight. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was brutal, man. It was it was brutal. I still have a cavitation where you can press and touch my bone in my leg. So you're just like a you're on a hike and you got bit by a snake. Is yeah, that a single track mountain course, Sully mountain, North Carolina, a wow. group of friends. We did rides all the time, you know, for conditioning and just, uh, you know, sense of community and friendship. Did you have a venom kit with you or did you just tie it off and get to the hospital? No. Uh, literally pedaled the next 15 miles after I got bit. What happened is it was on a single part where there's a 1200 foot shear or, you know, something like that, 812, whatever, just a giant shear. And uh, the gang had stopped, and they were considerably far ahead of me. Again, I'm 200-some-odd pounds. Yeah. And they were all, like, bikers. The one girl was uh, Costa Rica national champion in the female division. And um, they were stopped because there was a snake across the path. And I said, all right, I'll get it out. And I went, and it was four-foot. 
copperhead as I go to approach the snake and I'm going to, you know, just work it with my foot. Uh, one of the guys pulls me and said, don't go near it. And as it did, my foot came up, the snake got my leg. Oh. I then stepped, I then stepped on it with my other foot, broke it in half, threw it down the ravine. Uh, it immediately swelled up to a fist sized black knot and black blood came out of it. Uh, it was the single most painful experience I've had the next hour getting that off of the mountain and uh, getting back home. You're not having to keep it, your leg. You, yeah, I'm very, I was super fortunate. So just to be able to go there and do that was choice for me. So pride eight, you're in the corner of Mark Coleman versus Ricardo Marias. Uh, Marias was one of Henzo's like uh, prodigies at this time. He's six foot eight, eight, one and one um, team Nogueira. He just won a 16 man tournament. Going into that, Coleman going into that fight as a cornerman, how confident were you for Mark? Well, I'm a cornerman because I'm yelling and screaming, but I'm a coach, so I'm in his head deeper than that. Mark came to us after training at a lot of places, and Mark has a giant toolbox of skills, uh, most of which is he's just a tough human being. And then he adds to that per- that persona. He had come from the Ken Shamrock School and wanted to do some other types of things you know and when he got to us i realized really how much potential there was and i didn't have a question about it we had a game plan we wanted him to get him into the crank we wanted him in those type of techniques with the can opener and i think it helped him a lot to have the discipline whereas if you watch some of his earlier fights and he'd come off of four losses in a row after the rule change um he started to get frustrated. Three, three losses in a pain. And, and we know uh, one was uh, a yeah. I'm just yeah. talking openly. Well, he, 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 talked about it. He, he talked about it on our podcast. Actually gave oh, a, a, I he gave a dollar figure. I don't like to no. play in or out. He, he, he gave, gave a dollar figure. Yeah, he gave a dollar figure to it as well. Yeah. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that all that being said, um. That just seemed like the strategy for him. And his next strategy with the karate man was the same thing. And we planned out the two strategies for the next fights. We talked about it. That's the stuff that we'll just leave off the table for today. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of outside people that uh, really kind of twisted, uh, twisted it up. Okay. Well, here, I, I know Mark stayed with you because after that, December 11th, 1999, holiday fight party, you guys make a personal appearance. And Brandon Lee Hinkle is fighting Travis Fulton in the main event. He's one of our teammates, yeah. Do you remember? Him. Do you remember that cage coming apart? And the, you mean where the, his legs fell out and got ripped up on the side, and I had to do quick uh, little stuff to him. But he fought like an animal. I mean, he's a lion. The kid's a lion. I just talked to Brandon this morning for a second. We're talking tonight. He's stud. So Travis Fulton's leg gets caught underneath a cage that is not well put together. And Hinkle knocks him out. <laughs> it was like a dog pen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for small dogs, because any big dog could have gotten through that thing. So they had one referee for the fight, another referee trying to make sure people didn't go up against the cage wall. It, it, it's, yeah. there's, there's four people in there. Do you Again, remember? in the early days, so it was just, it was, uh, it was a hellscape. It's wherever you could get a fight. And, you know, just like in the early days of the UFC, guys were fighting for hundreds of dollars in dark matches um, that would eventually be shown on live anyway, because somebody's going to get KTFO'd. It's just going to happen or choke out. And that happened all the time. And so that was a tough time. Everybody was just taking what they could take. For me, I realized coaching was really my calling because I had, I did have a formula that worked for guys who had my skills. And um, I just thought, I, I just thought that was the way to go. You, uh, do you remember dealing with the promoter for that event? Mm-hmm. The promoter? Do you remember dealing with him at all? Uh, that fight? Yeah. I don't for remember who H- it is. You have to remind me. It's the California State Athletic Commissioner, Andy Foster. Oh, the joy. He went, uh, he, he went, he went from doing that, did his independent grind, both as a fighter and a promoter. Now he's in charge of the state of California. Wow. That's pretty big. Real big, real big. Yeah, I saw him at the uh, Athletic Commission meeting in Nevada, and he was like, we were so far over our head. We didn't know how to make a cage. You know, we yeah. saw these guys flying through walls, and we were like, 
This is no, good. They, they were generally con- genuinely concerned. They, I mean, they yeah, they didn't take it lightly. They started to panic because a bigger crowd showed up than I think they had anticipated, and the crowds in those in that era was just all fighters showing up. I mean, it was just it was a powder keg. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. You also opened up a gym with Bill Goldberg at one point. I opened up a gym and we took Bill on as a partner. We did. Did, did you ever get on a mat with him? I'm assuming you get on a mat with him. Yes. Uh, Bill is a superhuman, strong individual. If you get him in an arm bar, he's going to move his arm like a wiper with a moth on the window. Um, that being said, he did. He had, uh, you know, he's a, he's a good athlete. He's tough. We went our ways in a uh, unceremonious fashion. And uh, that's kind of that. Is what it is. Okay. Stuff, I mean, look, any of those guys that do the pro wrestling, to be very honest, they're super athletes. They're phenomenal athletes. They're every night. They're carnival guys. They're out there 200 nights a year, just taking bumps and falling and landing and getting miscued and smashed up and breaking things. And that's, that's, that's tough. You then fought Dave Benito, June 23rd, 2001, King of the Cage, uh, 25 second guillotine. Uh, Dave Benito is one tough SOB. Joey, you were also there that day. I was there. Yeah, I was at that event. Not only was I there, I lost $100 betting on Benito. <laughs> my, my best friend had a lot of confidence in you, and uh, I, I thought Benito was better than his UFC record would indicate. You yeah. know, Oleg had his number, but I thought he was going to do well that night. I, I yeah. lost my money. Yeah. No, that was a, for me, that was a great night. And um, please, if you guys get a chance, tell Tony Galindo's mom hi. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean it in the happiest way. When we met her, I was like, oh my God. Like his mom was like, I don't know, twice his age and wonderful and nice. And everything was one. I don't mean it in a bad way. I, I, I don't know the lady. I would tell you the energy I had that night was out of control. Oh, yeah. I, just, so, I was joking with everybody. You went by 25 second choke out, you point to the audience. And Don Fry runs into the cage. Might not well, I did sober. Say, Don, Don Fry. Fry out. I did say fuck you, and I called him <clears> out. <throat> and he did come in the cage. And when he got it close to me, you were at the fight, so you know. Yep. Um, he said, "Oh, you fucking gonna say, say fuck blah 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 his whole thing." And I kissed him, and he pushed me, and he fell over himself. And I stood <laughs> over him, and I yelled a little more. And then I told him to clear the ring. California State P- Patrol came in. You saw. The place was a mad scene. I'm hanging on the cage. They used it for the promo for the next bunch of years. It was a blast. It was, it was a, blast. a crazy scene. It was a crazy <laughs> scene, right? Yes, it was. Oh, wow. How, how come you and Don never never fought after that? You know, uh, so we had, you know, to be clear, we had beef. He took Goldberg. He, he, he became buddies with Bill. And uh, he was kind of sharing the beef and trying to put it on me. And I, when I saw him at the event that day and knew he was going to be coaching the guy on Friday, I said, hey, man, you know, and he just turned his back on me and like kind of like in a flip off move. Um, you know, Don's had a lot of great fights. There was really I don't know why it didn't happen. Um, I, You know, I could say because I know that when Terry Trebacock called me, he goes when I said, am I going to be fighting Don Fry? He goes, yeah, if you can come up with the other with the rest of the five hundred thousand dollars, he wants to fight you. So it was something like that. He might have just said that as a throw. Nobody was getting that in those days. No. But he threw some crazy number out. And Terry Treblecock told me, and when I took the fight, Terry, I was supposed to fight somebody else, actually. I can't remember who it is now. But this guy, Chris, in Florida, was uh, helping manage and got me the fight, actually. So he's on the phone. He goes, hey, man, there's going to be a change in the card. We're going to have to get you somebody else to fight. And I was so arrogant. Again, and I don't mind saying it. I was extremely arrogant at the time. He said, we're going to get you somebody else to fight. And I said, who? And they're like, Dave Benito. And I literally laughed and said, are you shitting me? Get me somebody on the way up, not on the way out. Oh. And Terry Treblecock laughed. And I said, Dave, is that you? And oh, Terry's like, oh, we got to get you here. We got to get you here. I was just, you know, I wasn't even that young. I was just wild. Yeah, he, he, came, he came from a pro wrestling background, too. That certainly helped, you know, in terms of uh, being able to sell somebody. You know, you had a mouthpiece on you. And you also had a set of balls on you. So in our interview with Chris Brennan, he talks about the time he fought uh, Kevin Hogan. And he said, 
I was with Huas Valley Tudo for X amount of years. I'm a king of the cage regular. The ring announcer would announce me as this. I leave the gym unceremoniously. I start next generation. They announce my name. He announces me from Huas Valley Tudo. He said, I win the fight. I go in the back. It's Pedro Hizzo, Marco Huas, several other people that were ginormous. And he's like, I had Obaki. Uh, he said, what did he say? He had, he said he had you and maybe a couple of his students. And he's like, Mike, it would have been ugly. And Obaki, <laughs> if Obaki didn't stand with me, he's like, man, it, 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 you guys would be asking me about that real, like right now. Yeah. No, that's awesome. It, it's great. It, it is great to have those memories and know that we stood by each other. You know, the, uh, with Fry, actually in Tokyo, I hung out with him a little bit after the fight. We talked. And after I fought the big cat, it uh, it seemed like everything had dissipated. Um, okay. That fight he had with Shamrock was just an incredible fight. I mean, it was just just a punch fest. I mean, they just they held each other, just smashed each other. Um, and I think everybody after that whole event, we're all in this, we're all the same guys. We're all at the same place. We're all trying for the same thing. Right. So it was Todd Medina yourself had Chris Brennan's back. Uh, yep. In the backstage, you know, for for yep. purposes. Todd Medina is a tough guy too. I traded his place a few times. Carlson Gracie black belt, although he's not listed as one, he one hundred percent received right. one from Carlson Senior. Yeah, right. Yeah. About uh, your relationship with Bobby Hoffman, you helped him train for Alistair Overeem and Eric Pele, and King of the Cage makes you fight him next. Was that intentional or was that requested on your end? I told them that I'm not getting any younger and I want to shot the world title as soon as they could give me one. Um, at that point, um, Harry had decided to tra- have him train at his gym. And, uh, when the promoter is backing the guy, I'm just going to say this. I dropped him like a sack of fucking potatoes. I planned my strategy. I went out. I felt good about it. Didn't watch his videos. I know how he moves. I had trained him before. I'd seen his fights live. Um, he's a dirty fighter. Uh, when he started striking me to the back of the head, my wife in the audience, who's 100% handicapped and was in a wheelchair for eight years, watches me get hit. And there's no way I could continue knowing that we're raising a child together. Every time I got in the cage, I'm defending a helpless woman and a young child. I literally was fighting to make a living. And that's the truth. And so when I went out there, I was very deliberately determined. It was right after 9-1-1. I was doing leg press with 1,000 pounds each leg. I was on my seventh set without getting off the machine, doing 10 reps. I blew my adductor magnus out on my left leg. You can see the bruising all over my leg before the fight. It was fucking hideous. Uh, and I, The next week was the fight, and I wasn't about to cancel because purse was already set. I got mouths to feed. I got things going on. That's just how it happened. And, yeah, you uh, I knew punch. I did what I had to do to take him to the ground and knock him out. And I thought what they did afterwards was a dirty pool. I told him as much. And uh, our friend who's the commissioner now, he might want to go back and make it a no contest. Yeah, because, dude, you took 19 punches. You the ground in that area. It's yeah. over. You took 19 punches to the back of the head. It was friggin' insane. Yeah. I mean, insane. Yeah. I realized that. Okay, you're not going to stop him from. I can easily turn, but this isn't how this is supposed to go. Yeah, it was a crazy, it was a crazy fight, and they definitely could have stopped it. You had Hoffman hurt very bad. They made me go in and rewake him up. I'm not even going to go into the whole ugly of Hoffman. Had talked to a couple of my guys that he trained with afterwards when he got out. He got married, got in prison, got shaved, got out. He was at the dojo. My guys went down and went out to Cali to train out there. And he said flat out, he goes, he won. Um, you know, the fix was in. It was like the fact is all I had to do was get up. And so, you know, he knows what happened. It's a long time ago. It doesn't matter. It hasn't changed my life one way or another. Uh, I don't get any benefit from saying anything that isn't exactly how I feel. And other people are allowed their opinion. Did, uh, did you have a good relationship? Got him down. I'm kidding. Did you, have a, did, you, did you have a good relationship with Terry Trevelcock? Uh, you know, it was okay right up until that when he um, decided – I said that it was uh, – my words where I said it is really Bush League to let that go on and not take it as a no contest. You all know what happened. And he took uh, great umbrage with that and was affected by it. 
and uh, told the commissioner, no way. And um, he was dead set against getting it to be a no contest. It would have been an interim belt, would have been a great fight. We'd both be going back out there for the, the belt, the same two guys. Fight ends in turmoil. I mean, if you're a promoter, that's hell of a promotion. So it's whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And Tom Erickson, when you got the call to Pride, February 24, 2002, did it surprise you that Tom was so willing to fight other wrestlers? No, Tom's a uh, celebrity wrestler, and I mean that in the greatest way. He's an Olympic guy. He's tough as hell. He's fearless. He fought everybody up until Heath Herring took him out. I don't think he'd lost a match. Um, you know, for me, that's just, you know, that's just another one. Um, a match with Hoffman fractured my patella. I'm just kind of like, I don't know if I'm even going to get a fight again. And then I got a call several weeks before and I was really happy to get it. Um, a lot of different things went into me not performing well that day. And uh, it's just the way it went down for me. It was a tough competitor. I thought that was terrible matchmaking from pride. Cause I thought you were a marketable guy, exciting style, charismatic. And then who do they throw you to possibly the worst style matchup on their roster? Right. I, I, agree I, think they, I think they could have got a lot more mileage out of you in pride. That, that's my opinion. Oh, there's no question. I wanted to do it uh, in pride. Uh, what is her name? Uh, Kina Kondo, you know, you Kina Kondo. You say, no, no. The announcer. No, no. The, the female promoter, her husband followed her around with a clipboard. She was the promoter. She's the one that set it all up. Here's what wound up happening with pride where it got wild. So I'm, I'm at King of the cage nine KOTC nine. I'm going to be fighting uh, 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 Dave Benito. So I get a call or I get um, I'm hitting pads and Yukina Kondo's husband comes over and says, can you please come to the trailer? OK, they've already told me when I signed this fight up that my next fight will be in pride. I just got to I got to win this fight in King of the Cage. Well, I had somebody else scheduled and then they get Dave Benito. They bring me back to the trailer to tell me that. Um, I'm not uh, going to be chosen. It's going to be Dave because he's got more celebrity. He's got three world titles, blah, 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 blah. said, really? You're telling me that 30 minutes before the event? Okay, then. And I went and I did what I did. And I had my buddy Ken with me. And I said, come on, we're going to the trailer. And that you saw the whole show that night. You saw how crazy it was. I oh, grabbed yeah. the game, the Don Fry thing. The energy was just amazing. It, it was probably one of the best things for me is the greatest sporting event ever just to really get to go out there against somebody at that level and be able to perform as well as I had hoped I would. We walk into the trailer. My buddy's like, uh, Ken Taylor. He's like, what are you going to do? I said, I got this. And I walked in and I said, well, you came to King Kong Island and you're leaving with a shiny lizard with a broken tail. See y'all later. <laughs> I walked out of the trailer. That's why they set that fight up. They fucking oh. hated me. <laughs> That was the most, that was definitely the most exciting King of the Cage I'd ever been to. And I've been to a Every lot. Every match of was exciting. The two matches afterwards were unbelievable. The whole event was incredible. Oh, I, I, I loved it. Tony Galinda, I know I joked before. That kid's fight was so tough. He was a little uh, powder keg, like just a fireball. Everybody on the card was tough. It was a good night. It was good. Oh, yeah. I think Larry was a good promoter. I think, you know, like all of us, we get our ego in the way sometimes. And we slipped this way or that way. As a, uh, as a proud wrestler, what was your feelings on Hickson's fights? Uh, watching him. Like, what was your opinion after watching him? I think if you didn't, I, I think if you didn't have the same opinion, like everybody wanted him to fight. I think, I think that the thing in retrospect, okay. If I go back and take my mind, then it's just going to be spewing and a lot of aggression and a lot of, where I could see what could be different. But the truth of it is he was able to control it because he had the marketing campaign of his brother started the other thing, but he's still the best one and he held out. So he was really put in a position to call his own shots. And that's what every one of us wants to do. So in my opinions, they're like everybody else at the time. He should have fought tougher guys. The guys that he fought, I thought, you know, were okay. But I don't think they were of the level to qualify putting a whole tournament together 
for him to win. I think he was tough enough to probably have won the tournament if they had assembled enough of other guys. I never rolled with the man, so I don't have an opinion about what, you know, beyond that. Yeah, he called out Coleman. I remember when Coleman, he calls out Coleman, and Coleman's like, hey, man, you know, set it up. And he's like, wow. He called out Coleman. He said he's just not strong enough. He said he's just not strong enough. And it's just like, well, you called him out. Now you're kind of backpedaling. My heroes tell me he's the greatest ever. I've got no reason to doubt him. But it's just, you know, I really wish you would have fought tougher competition. That's all. Uh, yeah. Well, right, can't just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's something else. Maybe a later date. That's something else, too. It's okay. You, uh, you trained with, uh, with Gerald Strebent. Do you remember him? Uh, help me a little bit. Okay. Yeah. He, he said he was in a yeah, room with you. Fight school or somewhere else. I think it was somewhere else. You okay. uh, you also you trained were, with Randy. Go ahead. Jill Stribler, he was on the same card as you, that uh, King of the Cage 9, if that helps. No. No? Okay. You uh, trained with uh, <clears throat> Jake Goody. You opened up Jake, Zen Jiu-Jitsu with him? Jake Goody in uh, St. Augustine. God rest Jake's soul. Jake left us at 35. Opened up Zen Jiu-Jitsu with him. The guy died shortly after, man. Yeah. He, uh, I tell everybody this. Jake Good had the single best 0-3 record of anybody I've ever even imagined in the fight world. Each one of those fights, he had an opportunity to win. And j- he just hadn't been skilled enough yet. You know, he just had been training, you know, a year or so. Um, had never done it before. Wasn't a wrestler. Didn't have a background. I mean, he was the brawny man. The guy's six feet, four inches tall, 248 pounds, ripped. And, uh, but yeah. Marcus Jones? I trained with him all the time. What about Marcus Jones? Sounds familiar, but you'd have to give me more. Yeah, his name was mentioned before the Bobby Hoffman fight. Uh, Tony Vartanian? Yeah, man. Tony was a great man. We lost him early, too. He was a manager at Club Prana. One night, he had to ask some people to leave. The guy... I uh, went to hit him with a gun. The gun fell. He picked the gun up and held it out, held it by the barrel and said, I need you to leave the club now. An off-duty cop shot him. And uh, we lost Tony that way. Oh. Yeah. Did you, did you ever uh, train with Crazy Horse Charles Bennett? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, I trained at uh, Ducel Berto's uh, camp in uh, Winter Haven, Florida. And what was he uh, like? He was, there. he was crazy. He was t- I mean, you get a name because you fit it. Yeah. He was, you know, he was, uh, it was, was some wild fights, but a lot of those guys were so tough then. I also trained uh, with, um, God, he's had like 140 fights, tall, slim guy. I don't know why I'm losing it right now. Jeremy Horn? No. Jeremy no. Horn. No. Yeah, Jeremy is it, Horn. Is it Jeremy? Okay. Yeah. Oh man, that guy! He fought everybody anytime. He fought in one of our events. He, I think, he fought in the main card at my New Year's Eve knockout, nineteen ninety nine, bridging two thousand. Fight started five seconds before, and they went at it. You, uh, there was a rumor. You can feel free not to comment on this if you don't want. There was a rumor February twenty first, two thousand five, International Extreme Fight Challenge. Uh, you had missed the flight. The rumor was that Shannon Rich had asked for a fixed bout, and you decided not to do that. Where was this? It was Shannon Rich. Was your opponent International Extreme Fight Challenge, February 21st, 2005? No, I was already done fighting. I, 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 I can say this. Maybe, maybe I still was, but I'll say this. I would never take a worked match. Could that have happened? I had people call and ask that all the time. Uh, I didn't do pro wrestling. I, I could have been WCW, WW, it didn't matter. I could have done any of them. I know all the, I mean, I know the work, but it's just not my bag. That's cool. You're two That's cool. Games. It's baseball, softball. Right. Did you ever work out with Wes Sims? I didn't. I know Wes, though. Big Jimmy over at Medina's place. Okay, good. Yeah. So, uh, did Big Jimmy. Also- Big Jimmy Ambrose? Yeah. Jimmy I trained with him a bunch. Really? You ask him. Uh, you we, ask we him. Have him we have him lined up. We're, we're going to be doing him. I soon. love him. He's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. But I train with him. 
you were with WCW before it was WCW. Was, I, yeah, I was never with them. I trained some of the cats. Um, okay. Big sexy Kevin Nash trained at Coffee Gym where I trained. Buddy Prim trained him. We tried to get him ready and put some meat on. He entered a bodybuilding show. We took, I think, second in the Mr. Georgia heavyweight. We were all there for that. And then he went into the pro wrestling. Um, yeah, I mean, I was around all those guys. The Steiner brothers, I knew them, trained with them at Coffee Gym as well whether it was weights or wrestling and rolling around. So you were never an in-ring performer for professional wrestling? Never. Not, not for one second. I am misinformed. Yeah, I, I had always I heard that you... One says it. It's, I, I mean, I got a picture up hanging in my one bar that my daughter put up, and I got the strap on from Jamie. I can't remember. He, he had a... What is it? Jamie Levine. He had a, an event, uh, World Extreme. And, uh, you know, a lot of the guys had fought there first, right? So... Um, well, uh, you fought okay. you 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 fought James Daniels for for Jamie Levine. Yeah. That's yeah. February eighth, two thousand three. WEF. How yeah. was your experiences with Jamie? Uh, when people pass, I try to be a little bit easier on him. He's passed <laughs> as well. He's dead. And um, but you know, he took two or three of my catchphrases and tried to market them. He goes, well, you didn't have a trademark on your other shirt. I said, the shirt's 10 years old. We've trademarked everything. I actually own the registration. Uh, he was slippery, but it's like a lot of the promoters then were slippery. It was crazy. You know, the fight I had the Stardust, I was supposed to fight Randleman. I was supposed to fight somebody else and then they bring Randleman. Um, you know, that was a, that was crazy. They boxed me from the fight on that too. They tried to, they came up with four different reasons and finally found one they liked. And then they just said, no, we're going to bring this other cat in. Hmm. So, you know, it's just, that's how it went in those days. It's just, it was a, you, you it was a wild west. Anything. Legit yeah, wild west. Anything. Yeah, it was you a legit wild west. It really yeah. was. What, what's your takeaways from your era of fighting? Man, what an era of being a man, of being alive, and um, unquestionably setting the trend for what really is the ultimate sport. I mean, it was just to be able to be there early on and to be, have presence of mind um, to, to make it happen. It was uh, for me, it was really awesome, obviously. And uh, I just enjoyed it. I had 20 different people win a world title. Rick Rufus. I don't know if you know uh, anything about, you know. Uh, yeah. So Rick Rick Rufus uh, beat Stan the Man Longinitas with me in his corner at Mass Destruction in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I was his coach for that event. Uh, it was a world title event. Manu Ento, uh, he trained with us. He's got two tie titles and one at the Lumpini Stadium. Um, Mark Robinson, uh, second in Abu Dhabi, fighting the, second, the year after, first in Abu Dhabi. Uh, he went against Ricardo Mariah. Ricardo, Ricardo Mariah asked me at the event after he threw him with a double over um, and tore both his pecs right from the shoulder connection. How come the guys you bring to the fight treat me like this? And he was laughing when he said it and put his arm around me. So, uh, I had a great impact on it. I think, um, you know, I, I guess I, I left that a lot going on family wise. And uh, it just, it was what I had to do at the time to survive it. A lot of, uh, a lot of my opportunities got blunted, uh, in business decisions that were, uh, out of my control. I would say you're, you're part of the era that paid to fight. Like right now, everybody's like, oh, the money, the money, the money. And dude, I think everybody deserves every penny that they can get. Right. But you're, you're part of the area that you bought into a tournament. And then the winner got a piece of what everybody threw in. I got, a, I got asked why I do this for so little. I was a chiropractor and sold three chiropractic clinics, seeing 1,100 patient visits a week. I had multiple doctors working for me at multiple clinics, multiple staff, everything going right. But after Carter took the Olympics away and this came up, I'm like, I'm all in. And uh, it just kind of changed it. it just kind of changed the whole everything for me. I, I was so all in and that that's what I did. I was asked one time again, I was asked why I would do why I would do this for that kind of money. Uh, and I said, I don't know. I think uh, if the aliens ever land, I might get one of the first phone calls. And uh, that's just how I looked at it. Maybe, maybe, maybe if the ice wall melts, you got to find the happy in everything you do. Yeah, yeah. If the ice wall melts, they might show up at your front yard. That's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) That's good. See what happens, man. Obaki, I sincerely appreciate your time. Your contributions to the sport of mixed martial arts have forever changed the direction of everybody that's listening to this show, as well as myself's lives. 
greatly, That's greatly awesome. appreciate it. I couldn't appreciate it more. And thanks for reaching out. That is, uh, for me, it's big, it's heartwarming, and I totally dig it. Look forward to seeing it. Canyon Smith. We owe you one, buddy. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Good it, Obaki. Thank you, Obaki. Joey Venti. He was the craziest thing I had ever seen in my life, which is a man with a doctorate education willing to fight shirtless in a cage against Bobby Hoffman, a multiple-time felon, almost stabbed to death in prison. I mean, talk about two sides of society getting together. This sport, it attracts all kinds. Bobby Hoffman's like on that list of people that we're really, really trying to track down, like really trying to track down. And he's very difficult. He's, I don't think he's locked up. I just don't know where he's at. I don't if know. If he's in California, I can probably <laughs> find him. My uh, parole agent buddies might have an idea exactly where he's at because <laughs> I have a feeling he is wearing an ankle monitor that tells them exactly where he's at. Right now. Right now. <laughs> Some of my buddies trained with him at the Shark Tank. He was he was in California in the Inland Empire for a while, and uh, they said he was a handful to train with. He was a legit crazy person. I, I remember like he was one of the first people that like I had ever heard got thrown out of Militich because they were just too nuts. And like the answering machine messages that he left on Monty Cox's, I, I never heard them, but I heard like of like what was said. Yeah. And um, it, yeah, he, he unceremoniously thrown out of Militich. Yeah. yeah. He burned a lot of opportunities, but he was a, a very scary guy, man. Talk about a Viking just born in the wrong era. I think he's one of those frontline type Vikings too. Yeah. Like, like you got to work off whatever it is you did. You got to fight on the front line and whatever atrocities you've committed in the past, you can now do it without repercussions, providing we win this, you know, right. little, little war that we're about to have. Yeah. He's yeah. one of those guys for sure. For sure. Joey, like, share, subscribe. I got some huge news, dude. This is friggin' monstrous. So if you go to our iTunes, you will see that there's 57 different people that gave us ratings. Joey, if we get 2,486 more, we can break into the top 20 MMA podcasts. All right. All right. So That's we're all we way. need. We're on our That's way. That's all we need, dude. Okay. So, so, you know, like we actually, we average about a little over a thousand downloads per episode. I think we're right there. I think we're right there. <laughs> We, we need every listener to jump on <laughs> iTunes and give us the goddamn rating. For Christ's sakes, listen, Mike's marriage, my marriage, they're in serious peril for this show. That's all we're asking back. Just give us a rating. Five-star review will take you 35 seconds. That's it. I've got a 15-month-old child. If you guys don't give me a rating, she's going up for adoption. I just can't afford her. I can't afford her anymore. I love her, but I can't afford her. There you go, Joey. It's, that's, that's as far as I can go, man. All right. <laughs> Joey, appreciate it, buddy. See you next week, man. Do all right. See you. Very good. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.